0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Roy Lazarwitz.
1: I haven't been here in 50 years. Can you believe that? And I said, the whole train can't believe you, Uncle Louie. The whole train.
0: That and more, but before that, the holidays are here and at risk-show.com slash shop. You can find the risk book plus risk face masks, phone cases, hats, mugs, totes, and more risk-show.com slash shop. And we are thrilled that businesses are starting to hire us again for storytelling for business workshops at thestorystudio.org. There was a little bit of a downturn there in the spring and summer, but having your staff learning how to communicate more authentically, more humanly, more movingly with one another while also learning about one another, it's enormously beneficial. Visit us at thestorystudio.org. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Christian McBride, big band, behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode, Howdy Stranger, three stories about encounters with strangers full of surprises. Well, I haven't done any Christmas shopping yet. I'll tell you, with the ADHD and my struggles with it, the whole giving of gifts, I mean, it becomes another massive to-do list item that just gives me agita to think about it. I used to do homemade gifts. I used to, like, make little pieces of artwork for people. Maybe I should get back to those roots. Oh, you know, I did want to point out that, guys, it's a perfect time right now as a gift to get a customized video greeting by me. I can sing you a song, tell you a joke, tell you a little story, wish a loved one a happy birthday or whatever it is. That is at cameo.com slash Allison. Maybe I could do something like that. Just personalized little greetings to loved ones. I don't know. <laughs> they might just say, you could have told me that over Zoom. Anyway, in a little bit, we're going to hear from John Blesso. John did one of our live streams recently. But before that, we're going to hear a story that Jesse Rosen shared on the show on one of our live streams recently as well, which was, it was uncanny how much this story reminded me of a very similar thing I went through in the eighth grade around about Halloween time. You can find Jessie on Instagram at Jessie Rosen. And here she is now with a story we call Happy New Year. I love you.
2: So this story takes place on the night before Halloween in the town of Freehold Township, New Jersey, in the year 1996. And that's relevant and important for a couple reasons. First, the night before Halloween. In this town, my town, Freehold, the night before Halloween is mischief night, right? Maybe you've heard of it, mischief night, cabbage night, they call it. It is this night when middle school kids get to exercise their God-given right to toilet paper trees, and egg houses. (laughs) And Mischief Night is so revered, so important in my hometown, that the cops act like it's not happening, and the real cool moms, they go to the Sam's Club for you to purchase the toilet paper and the eggs. So that's (laughs) the scenario that we're working with in Freehold, New Jersey. And the second piece of the puzzle that's important is 1996, right? I am in my eighth grade year of middle school, which means I have already survived... 2.5 years holding on as the least cool kid among the actually cool kids at my school. Maybe a position you're familiar with. (laughs) I got into this set of cool kids run by Queen Amy Kay and three boys named Bill because I was new to school as a sixth grader, you know, and every new kid is a cool kid. But in order to stay cool in this town and in this middle school, you had to have this trifecta of at-the-time awesomeness. You had to have a pool in the backyard, you had to have a sports team that you were part of, and you had to have a wardrobe provided entirely by Abercrombie and Fitch. (laughs) Queen Amy Kaye had six of those three things. She was on three sports teams, and her sister was the manager of an Abercrombie. Meanwhile, no sports for me, no pool for me, not a lick of Abercrombie in my closet. And to make matters even more challenging, I was a raging nerd. To be a cool kid, you kind of had to care. You had to be smart. You had to be into it. But there was a fine line between that and me. I was such a nerd. I got 100 so many times on quizzes at that time in my life that one particularly cruel teacher started referring to a 100 as a Jesse. So this is to say that I was holding on tight to my social status. I really think Amy Kay and the Bills didn't kick me out because I was pretty excellent at group homework projects. And I also was so agreeable and malleable and easygoing as a human at that point that they just had no reason to get rid of me. But I was certain that was about to change because I had just been accepted into the International Studies Specialized Learning Center at the Freehold Township High School. Yes, friends, the ISSLC at the FTHS. And it was this magnet school inside this really big public school. So come freshman year, just over the bend, I'm not going to see Amy Kay in the bills in classes. I'm not going to have the chance to help them on group homework projects. I'm going to be in a really big and focal way, a nerd. (laughs) I had been a nerd in elementary school. Hell, I had been a nerd in preschool. I was not about to go back. And so I decide what I need to do is like solidify my position among the cool kids, right? Really make it stick so that they have no reason to get rid of me. And I decide that I'm going to start that campaign on mischief night, the mischief night of my eighth grade year, my last chance at doing this. Obviously, I had yet to do it before out of a complete fear of ever doing anything in my life wrong. But that had to change now. So Mischief Night is on a Friday night in 96. And I convince my parents that I'm just going over to Amy K's to watch the Bills play the football thing on the Nintendo system, which was our typical Friday night. And they buy it, I assume, because they don't know if it's Mischief Night. Dad is the one to drop me off that night. And as he pulls into Amy K's driveway, he turns off Eric Clapton's Greatest Hits. (laughs) And he turns to me and says, hey, I want you to remember that you are who you are when you aren't being watched. I'm gonna say it again and more dramatically because that's what my dad did. He says, you are who you are when you aren't being watched. So apparently he did know in fact that it was mischief night. (laughs) And with that, I'm out of the car, belly full of nerves, but ready to conquer. I walk in to find Amy Kay and the Bills, my crew, but among them is a surprise guest. Mark P. And I am kind of instantly annoyed at his presence because Mark P was like the boy version of me in this cool kid set, you know, not cool, no cool, no crombie, no sports teams at all, a raging math nerd on the math olympiad he like me had gotten into the cool kid set because he was new to school in seventh grade he stayed because he did a pretty impressive jim carrey impression which was really key in the 90s you probably remember (laughs) and he was also from pakistan which had this real cool factor that the bills loved but make no mistake he walked my same social tightrope which made it inconvenient to me that he had a crush on me i wanted a bill to like me literally any bill would have done. Mark was a problem. And I decided that I'd have to kind of really navigate this night, make sure I wasn't spending too much time near Mark or Mark near me. So as again, to solidify my status. We head out at 9 p.m. My curfew is at 1030. So all I have to do is survive 1.5 hours of being a teenager. My low-key plan is to, like, have toilet paper and eggs to throw these Mischief Night staples, but not actually throw any. I'm kind of thinking I'll hurl my body, but not actually toss. I'll maybe toss an egg on the ground so it makes a splatter sound, but doesn't actually do any property damage. It's dark. I'm convinced no one will notice. We set out. We hit the first few houses. People are kind of getting into it, going slow, going steady. We hit a few more houses. I'm doing okay, kind of hanging in the back, throwing my voice as I had learned to do in drama camp. Mark P is kind of a little too close to me for my liking. And so I just keep positioning myself next to the nearest bill, but it's going okay. Then we hit a jackpot house, Mrs. Wessel, the home ec. teacher's house. Mm-hmm. Everyone hated Mrs. Wessel because everyone hated all teachers, but especially her. She had recently insisted that we learn how to iron a dress shirt, Frankly, I was happy for the lesson because my band competition uniform consisted of a button down. So it was valuable to me. I played the flute, but you knew that. So we hit Mrs. Wessel's house and everyone is going nuts. And no one's really near me at this point at all. Not even Mark P. He's way up in the front, which is where Amy Kay and the Bills are too. And they're not noticing that I'm hanging back. They're really not noticing me at all in any way. I'm just like this vessel for holding extra toilet paper and eggs. And this fear sets over me. I think, am I already out? Am I already uncool? And they're just hanging on to me until all the group homework projects are done? Did the ISSLC at FTHS already do me in? Meanwhile, they are living their best lives and I'm just watching in sheer jealousy as Amy K's blonde curls bounce up and down as she destroys private property. I'm smelling the wafting of all the Bill's Abercrombie cologne as they hurl toilet paper at innocent trees. I'm watching Mark P right up front with all of them solidifying his spot among the cool kids set and I'm getting angrier and angrier and angrier at myself. This is my fault. Dad was right. You are who you are when you aren't being watched. And I am a wuss, a goody two shoes, this total scaredy cat that can't have some good, clean fun aside from the eggs. I check my swatch. It's 10 p.m., 30 minutes remaining to make my mark. It starts to drizzle a little bit. And so Amy Kay says, We're moving on from Mrs. Wessel's house. And we move on to a house I've never seen before. At this time, the rain is really starting to come down. So Amy Kay calls out, last house. This is the last house of my last chance at mischief night ever. I am in or I'm out. So I take two eggs in my hands And I hurl them at the house. And I hurl them with the might of a girl that has never let herself throw a single thing in her entire life. (laughs) And my eggs connect and they splatter and they crack. And then the house blows up. And I don't mean the front porch light comes on. I mean the house explodes lights start coming out of every window and every door. And at first I think I'm seeing things, right? This like mirage of all my fears come to life, but the lights keep flashing and blaring for more and more places. And then this large alarm starts sounding from inside the house. We are all frozen in place until a woman exits the front door. She's an older woman, maybe in her sixties, and she's screaming. But there's something strange about the tone of her voice. And it's made even weirder by the way she's kind of waving her hands at us. We all notice. What's wrong with her? One of the bills says, I hear him behind me. I don't know how it all comes together in my head. It just does. She's deaf, I say. The flashing lights are an alarm. The alarm sound is an alert. It's meant to let her know that there are intruders or 13-year-old assholes. (laughs) I turn around to tell this to the Bills and Amy K and Mark P, but most of them are gone. All of them, in fact, but Mark P. And I have this pang of guilt in my heart for hating that he was the one that liked me. And then, I just start walking toward this woman. I remember a little bit of sign language from watching Sesame Street. I remember Happy New Year and I love you. And so I just keep walking and I start signing, happy new year, I love you, happy new year, I love you, bigger and bigger with my arms, which I now know means I am screaming nonsense in sign language at this woman, just hoping to connect. And of course it doesn't work. She goes back inside her home, now I'm 20 feet away, but even through the screen door, I can see that she's crying. And so I start crying too. And I am standing there crying with Mark P behind me when the cops show up 60 seconds mm-hmm. later. Apparently, they have a red line when it comes to mischief night in Freehold Township, New Jersey. One cop starts to calm the woman. The other cop tells Mark P and me to go walk back to Amy's K's house, which is just around the corner. They'll be there to talk to us in a minute. I never get to apologize to the woman. I never even get her name. Now, I so want to tell you that we got this vicious tear down from these cops, that they really gave us the business. But that is not what happened. They were there for five minutes. We were told not to do it again. They left. It was so fast, in fact, that they were gone by the time my dad arrived. I didn't tell him what happened. I didn't tell anyone what happened. I didn't even write it in my journal because I spent the next two days, the weekend, trying to figure out how I was gonna fix this with the cool kids. This was my fault. If I had just run, the cops wouldn't have come. If I had just been cool, we wouldn't have been in this mess. I gird my lines for Monday when I am surely going to be excommunicated from this cool kid group. But Monday comes and nothing. I'm at my locker when Amy K comes over to chat with me about the bills she currently loves. One of the other bills asks me to be in his math group project later that day. Mark P kind of gives me this like knowing glance at the lunch table, but then he just starts talking about his new Michael Jordan cologne. (laughs) I was still cool. I was still in, which I realized is how little shit these people gave about this entire situation. Meanwhile, I just can't get this woman's sad and scared face out of my mind. It makes me hate the person that I became when I wasn't being watched. And it makes me worried about my future in this friend group. More would I do to stay friends with these people? Freshman year comes and I start kind of a slow march away from Amy Kay and the Bills and even Mark P. Again, I want so badly to tell you that that was it. From mischief night on, I was done with them. But I was way too much of a people pleaser in my life for that then. But I started to find my tribe. I started to actively seek out the nerds in the ISSLC at FTHS. I joined the junior state of America. I joined speech and debate. I met my best friend, Rachel, a lesbian, who invited me to join her in founding our high school's first Gay-Straight Alliance. And none of those people ever asked me to throw anything at anyone. It's been a really long time since I have seen or really even thought of Amy Kay and the Bills and Mark P. But I see that woman's face in my mind all the time. And she reminds me that Dad was wrong when he dropped me off that night. It's not that you are who you are when you aren't being watched. I don't think it's possible. We're never really not being watched. Because as I learned that night, and I have tried to remind myself ever since, you are always there to see yourself. Thank you.
0: Wow, I Jesse, bro, that face. was so damn good. Yeah. Holy
1: cow. I'm just an average man with an average life. I work from nine to five, hey, hell I pay the price. All I want is to be left alone in my average
2: home. But why do I always feel like I'm in?
3: when I began college at the University of Connecticut, I was convinced that a diploma was just a ticket to some bourgeois spoil system where you'd spend all your time and money buying furniture. I thought it was a good idea to get one, but I was pretty high on Jack Kerouac. And once I learned that hitchhiking was safe and common in Western Europe, I signed up for UConn's study abroad program in France. And I thought, I'll use the program as a launch pad to get out there on my own and really see what I was made of. And so after about a month, I learned enough French that I felt comfortable to give it a try. And the first driver who picked me up, he heard my accent and he asked me if I was British. And I said, non, je suis américain. And being an American, back then was a good gig because this was like the height of American soft power, which was totally this thing that we used to have and that I was a beneficiary of because the next guy who picked me up was a plumber. And when he learned that I was American, he stuck out his hand to shake mine. And he said, I've never met an American before and I can't believe I'm driving one around in my truck. And that was how it went. So during the February break, I hitchhiked all the way up to London where I found this cheap hostel near the Royal Albert Hall and where I fell right in with this band of Australians. And this was just something that happened. Everywhere I went, there would just be these Australians. And, um, you know, they were really friendly. You're like, no, guys, mate," And they would become my instant friends. And so among this crew um, was a, uh, um, there, was this, there was this really tall blonde woman and like every guy in the hostel was just like tripping over his tongue, you know. And, but I found that I was really attracted to another Aussie named Melinda. And Melinda was a redhead and she had this like kind of devil gleam in her eye. But here's the thing, Melinda was older. Like a lot older, in fact, Melinda was thirty now <laughs> I was just twenty, so thirty seemed like really up there, you know but but we started chatting. I learned that she was working in exchange at the hostel, and she did the cleaning for her bed and she invited to come with me to the grocery store to go get stuff for a group dinner because all the Aussies like saved their money to later on buy bevies at the Queen's Arms Tavern. So I learned that Melinda had just left Australia with no plan. And when I asked her like, well, you know, when do you think you'll go back or what will you do after you're done traveling? She just said, well, I reckon I'll figure that out later on. And like, that seems so exotic to me because, you know, despite my head full of Kerouac, (laughs) I knew that when I went back, I was gonna go back to Yukon in the fall and get my diploma. You know, And even though I was already planning on coming back abroad, that just kind of made me a planner. And being a planner just felt a lot less like wild and adventurous than Melinda's open-ended adventure. And so um, after dinner, we went to the Queen's Arms Tavern and she bought me a drink. And then she started flirting with me and I did not know what to do because, you know, this is 1992. We had not yet invented cougars yet. Believe me. (laughs) And nothing back at the University of Connecticut had taught me anything about how to interact with a mature adult woman whose life already had chapters. But, you know, we're hanging out. And uh, at some point I said something so naive that cracked her up and she reached across the table and she ran her fingers through the hair behind my ears. And she said, I'm just gonna dry off some of this wetness you got here. And so we're later on, we're, we're walking back to the hostel, and she asks me what room I'm staying in. And I tell her, and she says, oh, you're sharing with Jeremy. And Jeremy was this Midwestern kid who did not go to the Queen's Arms Tavern because Jeremy went to bed early for like a full day of sightseeing. And so we're in the hostel and we're walking up the stairs and I'm like, am I following her? Is she following me? Like, I have no idea what's going on. We arrive at my door and she puts her hands on my shoulders and she gets up on her toes and she kisses me. And then she says, I'll see you tomorrow, love she turns around and walks up the stairs. And I'm like, woohoo, you know? But then in the room, I'm tiptoeing, you know, so I don't wake up Jeremy. But when I lay down in bed, like my mind just kept replaying the scene of her kissing me. And like, I didn't go to sleep for a while. Uh, So I slept kind of late that morning and then I wake up to the sound of a key in the door. I look over and Jeremy is long gone. And the door opens. And it's Melinda. She is wearing the most ridiculous housecoat from like 1962 that must've belonged to the hostel. And she's got cleaning products. And uh, so she sets down her bucket and her mop and she closes the door. And um, she looks at me and says, well, you look quite nice lying there like that. (laughs) And then she turns around and she locks the door <laughs> and she says, do you mind if I join you? And I'm like, huff, huff, huff. and you know, like maybe the Germans have a word for that stage in life. and like, you're no longer a virgin, but you're still just like running blind in the woods, like crashing into shit. And, Cause like, that's where I was. I mean, I would have told you then that I was a man, but I was just a man sized boy. And so Melinda starts unbuttoning her house coat, and beneath it, she's wearing this blue lace bra and panties. And, like, the panties were, like, really skimpy, you know? And this is 1992, and she was a redhead, so it just looked like the window of a building that was on fire. (laughs) And she's got like this, like the devil gleam in her eye, you know, and she crawls under the covers with me. And I am like, I'm covered in goosebumps and I'm trembling, you know, because she's 30. She's 30. She was 50% older than me. Yeah, do the math. And so she, she just like takes charge of the situation and she starts telling me what to do. And like her accent is like just driving me up a wall. And then like, you know, later on, some precautions were taken and then Melinda's just riding high. And then she starts getting loud and then she starts getting really loud. And then she became like, seriously vocal and I am sure that like the whole place can hear and then she starts to laugh and I'm not t- talking like a sexy little giggle I'm talking full-on ha 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 laughter and I'm like what the fuck is going on like is she laughing at me and I ask her like what are you laughing at and she said oh sweetie when I have a good time I laugh And then she leans over because she's not done. And then she starts saying things, things that I am not going to repeat here because this is risk and risk is a classy show, but things that you can imagine things. And then she starts to laugh again. And then we just lay there. And, um, you know, after a while, I finally like, you know, pick ourselves up and we get in the shower. And afterwards, you know, I towel off and get dressed and uh, Melinda puts her bra and panties back on and then she puts the housecoat back on and then she started cleaning the bathroom. So I let her do that. But we made plans to meet up later on that afternoon and then for the rest of the week, we were just inseparable. And um, we got on and off the tube together, you know, Mine, got, and like ate curry and just explored London together. And um, the best part was that uh, she had access to the keys. So she was always able to uh, arrange for us to stay in a room by ourselves. But she continued to just be ridiculously loud. And uh, I called her out on this and she said, oh, sweetie, they can't hear us. And I was like, they can absolutely hear us. But she, you know, just did that without a trace of self-consciousness. And that was just one thing that I really loved about her. And so the last full day that we spent together, it just happened to be leap year day, 1992. And it was this unseasonably warm and sunny Saturday. And it just felt like all of London was in a great mood because of the weather. And so we spent the day just walking around Hyde Park this is right when rollerblading first caught on in London, but like they were not very good at it yet. You know, it's so all these people just like, sorry, 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 and just crashing into each other. And um, we arrived at kind of a, a bend in the road and Melinda decided that she wanted to sit and watch this. And so she took out a little like kind of tapestry and spread it out on the grass. And we just sat there and watched people like crashing into this light post. And, I remember like putting my arm around her and just like pulling her against me and just thinking about how much fun I was having with her and how I did not want to leave in the morning. And so later on, we're, we're back at the supermarket and she says, would you like to have a bath tonight? And I said, you don't have a bath, you take a bath. And she said, no, you have a bath, you're not taking it anywhere. And you know what? She's right. Anyway, I of course, I said yes because I just said yes to everything that she suggested. And uh, so after dinner, she arranged for us to stay in the top room of the hostel because that was the only one that had a tub. And after dinner, she just grabs uh, like half of a bottle of wine and a candle. And I will never forget sitting in that fragrant bubble bath with her, like in the flickering candlelight and our, our legs are kind of tangled up and we're smoking cigarettes because it was like by far the most sensuous thing I had ever done. And so in the morning, um, you know, I'm packing up my stuff and I am feeling so sad. But, uh, Melinda tells me that she wants to walk me to Victoria station where I'm going to get on the tube to, the outskirts of London to go pick up my first ride home. And so she writes down her address in Melbourne and I give her mine. And uh, we walk to Victoria Station. When we got there, I almost started to cry. And I I, I just, I said to her, you know, um, I just, I've had so much fun with you. I really hope that I get to see you again. And a tear ran down her cheek and she said, yeah, that would be great. And, and she gave me a hug and a kiss. And then I turned around and I walked down the tube. And so, you know, after that trip to London, I kept traveling and I kept diving deeper into French culture. And my world was becoming so much larger than it ever had been back at Yukon. But I did go back there that fall. And as soon as I graduated, I moved back to France. And as soon as I found work and a place to live, I wrote Melinda a letter. And um, yeah, I never heard back from her and I, I have no idea where she was or if she ever got it. A few years later, when we finally had the internet, she was one of the first people that I looked for, but her last name was so common that there was just no way to find her. And so I never heard from her again, but I will never forget her. You know, all these years later, I'm still trying to be more like her. Thank you.
0: <laughs> John blesso everyone <laughs> That was fabulous a man uh, uh, what were you a, a man-sized boy <laughs> <laughs> This is Risk. This is Simon and Garfunkel behind me now. And we just heard from John Blesso. John is one of the producers of the Artichoke storytelling series in Beacon, New York. Fantastic show. And you can find him on Facebook. Before John, we heard a little something from Rockwell. Somebody's watching me. And guys, this week's Patreon bonus story is actually three stories.
2: And then two more people come on either side of them. And so now there's five people on their knee in a row. And I'm just dancing with this glowing towel. That
0: is Tessa Starr in one of these four-minute anecdote compilations that we put on Patreon. I love these. Such a lovely way to hear more voices. This one also features Emily Colburn and Liz Griffiths. So don't miss out on tons of bonus content by helping us out this year and becoming a member at patreon.com slash risk. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... Our final story for this week's show. Uh, this was in the Risk book, but has yet to run on the podcast. This was recorded in Dallas several years ago. It's Roy Lazarwitz, who you can find on Instagram at bomb underscore repeat underscore bomb. And here he is now, Roy Lazarwitz with a story we call Uncle Louie.
1: So to set the scene, it's December 23rd, 2014. I'm in my childhood bedroom. And in two weeks, I'm going to move to Austin, Texas. See, I grew up in New Jersey, and I lived in New York for a few years, and that clearly didn't work out. Uh, So I decided Austin, Texas was the place to go. And when I decided to make that move, I outwardly was like, that's it, that's the place for me. Inwardly, I didn't feel that way. So when I decided to make that move, I also decided to spend as much time as I could with my family. And my mom had told me that my Uncle Louie was visiting from California, and all he wanted to do was go to New York. And Uncle Louie hadn't been to the East Coast slash New York in 45 years, 50 years, since the Vietnam War-ish time and I'm sitting there, and I'm recounting my life at this point, as if I've lived 70 years. I'm 24. I'm 26 now. Uh, so I hear my mom call saying, my Uncle Louis is here. And he immediately <laughs> cuts her off and says, get down, you smartass. I haven't spoken to him maybe my entire life, and he's already calling me a smartass. ass. <laughs> So I go downstairs, and what stands before me is a six-foot-five, 250-pound man who's wearing a collared shirt, slacks, brown shoes, and a yarmulke because he just recently rediscovered his Judaism. (laughs) And also, he has crutches attached to each one of his wrists because he was in the Vietnam War, and they used... Agent Orange in the Vietnam War, and what they didn't know when they were using it is that the soldiers who got exposed to it, it had negative effects on their insides, and now their bodies are essentially crumbling. So now it's December 23rd, 2014, 7 p.m., it's starting to snow, and I'm taking a man who needs crutches to walk into New York City for the first time in 50 years. So we get on a train, and Uncle Louie doesn't know how to control his voice, and we're, on a t- we're sitting there, and he's like, I haven't been here in 50 years. Can you believe that? And I said, the whole train can't believe you, Uncle Louie. The whole train. So we get off the train, and I'm looking for escalators. I'm looking for elevators, whatever I can do so he doesn't have to walk that much. And we take an escalator up to the street. And for those of you who have been to New York, who have been to Penn Station, it's not that pleasant of a place So it's starting to sleet, and we step out onto the sidewalk, and he starts to cry immediately. And he looks up at the sky, and his his glasses are playfully covered in sleet and tears, and he's ignoring the neon signs, and he's ignoring all the people who are giving him dirty looks because he's standing right in the middle of the sidewalk as they're trying to walk. And he just keeps asking people who are walking by to take his picture. Excuse me, sir, can you please take my picture? And I said, Uncle Louis, I can take your picture. <laughs> Let me do it. And I'm like, okay, here we are. What do you want to do now, bud? And he was like, I want Italian food. And I said, great. I took him to a place that to him was a five-star restaurant, but it was just a hole-in-the-wall pizza place, to be fair. And I got a slice of pizza, and he got a slice of pizza, and then he got a uh, baked ziti, And it was enough baked ziti for three people. And he ate the entire thing. And as he was eating it with food in his mouth, he kept saying, oh, this is so good. The cheese, the pasta, it's all so bad for me. My diabetes, this isn't good for my diabetes. And I said, Uncle Louie, I didn't know you had diabetes. I wouldn't have taken you here if I had known that. He said, I'm with my nephew, fuck it. So we walk around a little bit more and he's telling me about my cousins who I've only met once and my aunt who I've only met once and then we get on the train to go back home and it's about 11 o'clock now and walking around New York City by yourself is tiring but walking around New York City with someone else who hasn't been there in so long and can't really walk very well is so much more tiring. So I'm dozing off on a train and he starts to talk to me more and he's talking at a whisper which is very nice of him to do. And he says, Roy, have you ever been in love? And I said, let's not talk about that. Uncle Louie, I was going through a typical thing at the time. And he said, I've been in love. And I said, sure you have. You have kids. You have a wife. And he said, but it wasn't with my wife.
0: <laughs>
1: okay? He said it was with a man in the army. And his name was Jasper Mosley. And I said, oh boy. I think this is our stop. And it was. It was our stop. And we got off the train. And my dad picked us up. And I didn't say another word about it. Uh, We just talked about the trip. We talked about going to get ZD. And my dad was like, you got diabetes. And he was like, I'm with my nephew. And we went home that night. And I went upstairs, and I thought about this. and I thought about what he said to me, and I said, mm, whatever, it's fine, don't worry about it. So I went to bed, and I woke up, or I, correction, I was woken up at 5.30 the next morning, and it was my mom, and she was patting me on the shoulder, and she said, Uncle Louie wants to go to breakfast with you. And I said, give me two hours, and she said, he's been up for an hour, and he won't stop talking, Please. Please. <laughs> Please take him to breakfast and I said okay alright so we went to a diner and we went to this diner and he got eggs and I got pancakes and he kept playing peekaboo with this baby that was behind him and the baby hated it (laughs) hated it because here's this guy who can't control his voice six foot five looks like the human version of Shrek going (laughs) peekaboo terrifying And we pay, and he's asking about my life, and he's talking about me, and I'm like, okay, all right, should I bring this thing up? I'm just going to let it slide. Then we get in the car, and it starts to rain, and it doesn't just start to rain. It starts to really rain, like downpour, and he's from California or lives there, and they don't know how to drive in rain, and he's like, I don't know how to drive in rain. Do you mind if we sit here for a little bit? And I said, sure, 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 and he starts to talk to me about the war, and he starts telling me about being in Amsterdam. He was a naval officer in Amsterdam, and he would talk to me about these buildings. He's like, "Dad, hey, these buildings, they got all these floors, and each floor is dedicated to the thing that you like. First floor, drugs. Second floor, S&M. Third floor, menage a toise. Fourth floor, any homosexual acts that you want to partake in. And I said, Uncle Louie, did you partake in any of this? And he said, no. I was policing the people who were partaking in these things. I could never. And I said, what about Jasper Mosley? And he said, Jasper and I, I called them Moe's. And it wasn't about lust. It was just about two guys who happened to find each other at an interesting point in their lives. We just knew how to talk to each other. We had an instant connection. And I said, did anything happen between the two of you? And he said, absolutely not. I never wanted to risk my career. I didn't want to risk Moses' career. And I said, well, Uncle Louie, why didn't you pursue the feelings that you had after you got out of the war? And he said, risk my family? I could never. But I got a bucket list. And he started talking to me about his bucket list. And he was like, I want to know what it feels like to kiss another man. I want to know what it feels like to hold the hand of another man and if I don't complete this before my life is over, I'll consider my life a failure." And that's when the wheels really started turning in my brain and I started realizing that realistically speaking, here's a guy who's 67 years old, he can't use the lower half of his body there's a good chance these things aren't going to happen for him. And the rain continues to pour, and he continues to talk to me more about his life. And I told him that I've kissed a man once or twice in my life. Haven't we all? And his response was, tell me about it. And I said, Uncle Louie, it's pretty much the same thing. It's not that big of a deal. But to him, it was the end of the world. And I started telling him about my trip and my my plans to move to Austin and what I was going to do and how I was feeling weird about it and I didn't know if I should really do this because I wasn't going there with ideas and prospects. I was just going because I felt like I had nothing left in New York. And he said to me, he said, Roy, if I can tell you one thing, if I can leave you with one message, it would be if there's something you want to do... If there's a weird feeling that you have, go for it. If there's something you want to do that you don't want to tell your mom and dad about, do it. Because we only live one life. And there's nothing worse than sitting down in a chair 40 years later and thinking about what could have been. And then the rain stopped. And he said, I'll take you home now. I'm sorry that this is how your Christmas Eve started. I said, don't worry, bud. (laughs) It's okay. And... We drove back to my house. And it was then that I knew that I needed to make this move. And here I am, two years later. uh, He brought me back home, and I went up to my room to continue packing, which I had been putting off because I didn't know what I was doing. And that was it. That was the last time I spoke to him, to this day. That was the last time I saw him. He left an hour later, and he spent Christmas with my other uncle and then drove back to California, but Since that day, once a month, I have a dream where I get an email from Uncle Louie and in the subject line it says, wish you were here. And it's a picture of his feet buried in the sand and his feet are swollen and not looking great, but they're buried in the sand, so it's fine. And I call my parents. In every dream I call my parents and I say, I just got this weird email from Uncle Louie. My mom always says, you'll never believe what happened. Uncle Louie left his wife for a man and then I wake up and I remember that I am where I'm supposed to be and it's because of him. Thanks so much.
0: this week's episode folks this is widow's peak behind me now and we just heard from roy lazarwitz like i said that story is in the risk book which makes for a great gift at the holiday times cindy freeman coached roy for that show in 2017 david crab coached jesse rosen for the live stream that she was in and michelle walson coached john blesso Folks, we'll be diving into our winter holidays programming next. So keep in mind that next year, the Risk Live Stream will return. It's going to be back on Friday, January 15th at 9:30 p.m. Eastern, and tickets are always at risk-show.com/tour. Don't forget also another really phenomenal gift to give, or maybe for your own self. I do these hour-long or half-hour-long consultations for story coaching, show producing, or other creative consultations about projects over at KevinAllison.com. And please don't forget to follow us. We're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at risk show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at the Kevin Allison and on Instagram. Don't forget to check out the story studio NYC. And don't forget to check the episode notes of the episode you're currently listening to because there is a list of all the links to ways you can get risk related gifts to share with others or to send us the gift of your support folks today's the day take a risk
3: What up? Far rock, what up? But Jay and Beyonce was hmm kissing I was cooking 1,000 grams in my kitchen My nose was telling police I love you, boo I was shining my nine You know how I do, I got a fully loaded clip I'll be on that shit I got, I got a fully loaded clip I got a fully loaded clip I'll be on that shit
0: What the clip Yeah. What the clip yeah Put that clip here.